Good morning, everybody. Whether you're uh, experiencing church for the very first time or whether it feels like you've been going to church all your life, we are glad uh, that you are here. To orient those of you who are a little newer, we are going through a letter from the New Testament in our uh, sermon time. Uh, It's called Ephesians. It's one of the shorter and more famous books. And we are just starting. So we are in our second um, sermon on it, and we are working our way slowly through the first chapter. We're going to read some of last week's verses because they connect conceptually and logically with the verses that we'll be concentrating on, the last couple in your printed bulletin and here to help us with the reading is Sharon. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Speak to God. Let me pray for a moment. Lord, your servant is weak. I am inadequate, but you are adequate. And so I ask that your spirit would empower your servant to speak well of your son, that all your children may glory in him and become like him for your pleasure. Amen. I was driving uh, to a campground um, for a retreat that I was speaking at. The driver was the organizer of the retreat. We were driving out of the city past the airport into a pretty barren land. It was nighttime. There were few trees, and it was just kind of a barren landscape. And so I began to ask about the arrangements, and I found out I'm in a very large tent with a bunch of other men. It's a common tent. There's about 30 of us. And I'm not a camper nor the son of a camper, uh, so I was not too excited about spending a few days on hard, cold ground. I'm not a sleeper or the son of a sleeper, so I was not looking forward to three or four sleepless nights. And because I'm kind of an unfiltered guy, I let all of those sentiments out on the drive. He was gracious for a while, but I could sense frustration building in him. And finally, you know, after all, it was his retreat. And so finally, he pulled over. And we're in that kind of remote part of Canada where there are no, like, lights. And so he pulls over, and I said, what are you doing? And he said, you're from the city, right? Yeah. Why? Get out and look up. So I got out, and I looked up. And what did I see? Millions and millions of stars 
with a, with a vividness and a beauty that I don't ever get to see because of the reflected light of our city. It was glorious. It was thrilling. I just looked up. My jaw dropped. I said nothing. He looked at me, and he looked up, and he said nothing. And I looked over at him, and I said, wow. Looked at me, and he said, yeah. Then he looked up again. And I kept looking. Finally, I said, I forgot about this. And he, still looking up, said, yeah, we all do. He didn't say much, but he made his point. We all do. We all know there are hundreds of millions, billions of stars. It's a statistic in our mind. It's something we can describe and recite. We even know names of galaxies. This is just stuff in our brain. We can take it for granted. But the beauty of it in front of me when confronted so captured my heart that I saw the difference between something that should capture my heart but has become a mere statistic, something that should thrill me but bores me. Men and women, this is exactly what happens to me and you. And this is why I believe Ephesians was written. You see, Ephesians was written as... Kingsley said last week, with no particular crisis in mind that it was responding to. So Paul wrote it more as a proactive letter for people before they're in crisis to help prevent any kind of spiritual weakness or crisis. But in so doing, I think he went to a deeper inclination we all have, and that is to make the wondrous things that God has done for us mundane and boring so we know them but we're not thrilled by them. Their beauty becomes faded and dusty in our hearts and we take for granted what should render us speechless. The human heart starts to find glorious things ordinary if it's allowed to do that. And so what Paul is doing here is he's stopping the car. You from the city? Get out. Look up. Let your heart be captured anew. We want to look into the glory of who God is. And so here in the first chapter, he gives us this tour of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And today, we're going to look at the Son, what Jesus has done, and the power of the Son to change your life and capture your heart. We're going to look at two things. The power of God's redemption in Jesus, and secondly, the purpose of God's redemption in Jesus. The power and the purpose. Firstly, the power of God's redemption in Jesus. We are looking at verses 7 to 9. These are the verses we will focus on. They come out of verses 3 to 6. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. There we are. Paul here turns a song of praise from the Father to the Son. After waxing poetic 
And Kingsley gave us part of that song last week about the wondrous love of God the Father. Paul sings about Jesus. And Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, if you're a Christian right now, you're going, yeah. Some of you are going, yeah, heard it before. Let me tell you about forgiveness for a moment, because unless you are completely out of touch with culture, you are knowing there is a war going on about the meaning and the application of forgiveness in our culture. Our culture is whipsawing between two competing theories of what we should do with it. Firstly, the idea that forgiveness is dangerous. This is in the social justice discussions, particularly in the um, racial social justice discussions about the oppression of black people in North America. It It is being seen as dangerous. Black people, for example, should not anymore forgive white perpetrators of crimes because forgiveness is letting white people off the hook. It's a costless way to allow oppressors to get off too easy. Forgiveness should not be allowed. In some cases, it should be repudiated because it frustrates justice. And justice needs to be personal. The person who perpetrated the evil needs to be personally accountable, and retribution should come in its fullness upon them. We're beginning to learn that this ascendant model is now being pushed back against because it's becoming unsustainable. Elizabeth Brunig, writer of the New York Times, said there's something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. She's talking about this grappling with forgiveness from a social justice perspective. Michael Dyson, black professor, Uh, at Vanderbilt University, an author of Entertaining Race, Performing Blackness in America, says, in our culture, reconciliation is now often impossible because one side is hell-bent on proving that it is right and the other side is wrong. Archbishop Tutu's vibrant sense of restorative justice could help us grapple with these two problems in society today. Firstly, the soul-destroying focus on punishing others. Secondly, the temptation to wipe out enemies through the means of canceling them. Forgiveness has no place if it will stop retributive justice from fully landing on perpetrators. That's the first view. There's a second view of forgiveness that's rampant in our culture, and it has very conflicting ideas. It is, you're hurt, somebody hurt you, we're going to admit that this kind of justice is often impossible, just forgive them as a method of self-care. Don't need to meet with them, just forgive them, take the weight off your shoulders. depersonalize forgiveness. Well, which is it? Is justice so personal that we have to absolutely let all the weight of justice fall upon the perpetrator, but forgiveness has no role? Is forgiveness just an easy self-care thing that you do and it's impersonal because we're not going to worry about justice? Which is it? Feel the conundrum about forgiveness that's whipsawing our culture in its conversation Is it too high a cost, too high a weight to carry? Then you must forgive. Is it too light a cost? Then you can't forgive. 
men and women, what the world desperately needs is what Christians go, oh, that gospel view of forgiveness. Because the gospel says forgiveness always costs. Forgiveness is always the full payment of the full cost of justice, except the one forgiving is bearing the cost consciously. It is not costless, but it is not impersonal and just self-care. It is self-cost for the sake of forgiveness and reconciliation. What our culture whipsaws back and forth and agonizes over, the gospel tells us a beautiful, robust, true solution that forgiveness is not a denial of justice, but a rerouting of justice, unilaterally chosen by the victim, by their choice to absorb the justice. It is always, therefore, a costly act of personal love. Now, let me ask you, if you're a Christian and you read Forgiveness of Sins, and you went, this is kind of basic. Can we move on? I've been a Christian a while. I've heard this a while. I'd like to graduate from this basic stuff. Men and women, the modern culture's schizophrenia about this tells you forgiveness is not basic. And the gospel tells you it is nothing like basic. The redemption of people who sin against God by God himself at the sacrifice of his son is not basic. It is unknown in any other religion. There is no other religious view that says God is going to sacrifice his own son. Hinduism. Hinduism has you earning your own karma in your next reincarnated life. Islam has you redeeming yourself and justifying yourself before Allah. Your works determine his response. So does modern Judaism. This story is not only unknown in human religions, it's unknown in human storytelling. Tell me a story like this. Tell me a story from any culture that's like the story of the gospel, and you haven't inhabited the story enough to see how wild it is. So I'm going to tell you a parable, and you're going to inhabit the story with me for a moment. So I invite you in. Pretend you're in the middle of the Roman Empire right now. And the Roman Empire had slaves. And if you were involved with intercourse or commerce in the Roman Empire, you would have walked by a slave market many times. And there in the market, you would have seen slave dealers selling their slaves, stripped naked, being marketed, their, their most advantageous features trumpeted. And then you would see rich Romans resplendent in their togas, walking around, examining them head to foot, listening to and haggling with the slave dealers so that they could get slaves to run their households, farm their fields, and conduct business. And you'd, you'd smell the smells of the slave market, the, the smell of sweat. You'd see the fear and the despair in the eyes of the slaves. You'd see the calculating interest in the eyes of the resplendent toga wearers. And then you'd suddenly hear the whisper of astonishment because the most prominent Roman of all, the most powerful Roman of all, the emperor himself with his one beloved son is suddenly appearing at the market and people are shocked. 
And he walks up to the slave dealer and he says to him, see that man? And you look at the slave he's pointing at. And unlike most slaves who have that dull look of resignation, this one's face is filled with abject terror and he turns away and you don't understand. So you look back at the emperor and his face is filled with an emotion you cannot believe and you wonder what is going on. And the slave dealer looks at him, recognizes the emperor and says, your highness, you want that slave? Immediately you can tell in his mind he's tripling or quadrupling the price. And then he stops and he looks again at the slave and he looks with concern at the emperor And he says, no, your highness, you don't want that one. Oh, but I do. Oh, no, you don't. He was made a slave because he helped lead a rebellion in one of the outer provinces that killed your brother-in-law and injured your nephew. This slave you do not want. Oh, this is exactly the slave I want. I will pay whatever price you ask. And the slave dealer looks and he thinks he gets it. And he says, I understand. You deserve your vengeance. I will offer you a fair price. No, you do not understand. I will pay any price because I want him freed. 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 Why, your highness, would you free the man who helped instigate a rebellion against you and your family, who killed one of your family? Why would you do that? I offer my son, my only son. He and I have agreed. We want him freed so we can invite him to our home next week and see if he will be adopted into our family. Who has that story? Who has that story? If you're a Christian, that is your story. You are that slave. Except it's not some Roman emperor, it's the infinite God of the universe who owns everything, who's given his beloved, innocent, divine son in your place, who's deliberately, willingly gone, not into slavery in your place, but to the cross and given his life for you. If you're here and you're a skeptic, you've been told by your culture, I need to craft my own story. I need to inhabit and craft and curate my own story. Tell me, is your story that beautiful? Is there a story that beautiful for you to inhabit? Because that's the gospel story. That God loved you so much that he sent his only son for you, to die for you. And the price was the blood and the life of his beloved son. Charles Hodge, famous professor at Princeton Seminary, said, We are redeemed neither by power nor by truth, but by blood. The blood of Christ covers your sin. The blood of Christ removes the wall of alienation 
between you and God, allowing full communion with God. Ephesians chapter 2. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, between God and humanity, it has been broken. It frees you from wondering what your purpose in the world is. You are the beloved child of God, freed by the price of his son's blood that you may enter full communion with God. The price has been paid. The obstacle has been removed for the Holy Spirit of God to come in and give you full communion So I ask you, of what price, of what worth is the blood of Jesus? One drop of his blood, men and women, is worth all the money in the world. One drop of his blood is infinitely valuable. It is priceless. His blood shows the depth that God would pay to pay the debt of justice. His blood shows the depth of love that exists in the heart of God for rebels like you and me. We've all sinned and fallen short of his glory. But 1 Peter 1.18 says, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's why Paul will continue and say, but the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. God here is the infinitely wealthy, toga-wearing owner who comes and frees every slave who will be willing to come into communion with him. So I ask you again, skeptic, if you're here and you're investigating the faith, find yourself a better story than that one because there isn't one. If you are a Christian, stop, get out, look up. It's not basic. It's everything. Church, The people here who call themselves members, adherents of Grace Toronto Church, we are called on mission to do what my friend did, stop the car, tell people to get out and look up. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them about the forgiveness of sins. Acts 4.12 says there's salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men and women by which we can be saved. Men and women, do not tell me, if you're a Christian, that you love the city so much that you don't want to tell people about Jesus. It's not the loving thing to do. Don't. Don't deceive yourself. You're not deceiving anyone. The reason we don't tell people is because we love ourselves too much, and it's more convenient for us And it's easier for us and more comfortable to not have hard conversations, to not have people wonder what you're like because you're a Christian. The Son of Man went to his Father and they agreed that he would be sold into slavery and death and then rise. 
that we might be free. And we have been freed if we're Christians. And we don't want to tell other slaves that there's freedom available for them. We are called to tell the basic truth that changes everything. That there is redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. The power of God's redemption is indescribable and it is priceless. And that's what Paul is saying here. Don't miss the power of his redemption. And he puts into this little passage something about Jesus, though, something that has confounded and astonished scholars for centuries because he doesn't stop there. He gives us our second point by saying these words, and I will start with the last part of verse 8 and go into verse 9 and 10. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now we get to the ultimate purpose. Why did God do all this? <laughs> Men and women, these verses probably define the whole book of Ephesians for us. Well, actually, they probably define our lives and the life of everyone else we know. Actually, they probably define the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. The, uh, I say probably because the verses are somewhat difficult to translate and understand. I, so I leave a little room for the fact that I may not quite have them right. I've been doing a lot of reading this week. Modern scholarship, responsible scholarship has come to some consensus on most of what this means. And that's what I'm going to tell you, the stuff that's clear. I could get into all the Greek difficulties in the passage. There are many. I spent hours trying to parse them out. But they don't change the main basic message. And that is this. God has a plan. It's been revealed for us in the death of Jesus upon the cross. And to his apostles after he rose. And the plan is that at the end of time there will be a uniting of all things in Jesus. Jesus, who John 1 says created the world. Ephesians 1 says is the purpose for which the world was created. He's the terminus. He's Kipling or Kennedy. Ah, you guys don't take the subway. <laughs> All things, he says. When he says all things, he means all things. He says in heaven and on earth. That's a clue. That's kind of a, a merism. We might say from the Atlantic to the Pacific, we're Canadian. That means we're Canadian all the way through. In heaven and on earth and everywhere in between as it is. This, is. this is what he's saying. All things physical and material, things on earth. All things spiritual, in the heavens. Ephesians uses a specific term five times. It's kind of one of the keys to understanding the specific message of the letter. That phrase is translated heavenly places in this translation, heavenly realms in other English translations. You saw it introduced last week by Kingsley. We were blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So when Paul talks about in heaven here, he's talking about the whole spiritual realm. The realm where angels and evil angels and God exist. The realm that is not spatially separate from us. But spiritually, it's like another dimension. And at present, 
there is a fracturing, a division, and a dysfunction caused by sin and evil. It existed in the spiritual realm first with the rebellion of angels against God led by that particularly influential angel whom the scriptures call the devil. It then spread to the physical realm on earth when that same evil angel deceived Adam and Eve into rebelling against God. Paul is saying Christ came, died, rose to reunite us with God spiritually. That is the beginning of the uniting of all things, the uniting of humanity with God. But he will come again to consummate the uniting and the redemption of that fracture. All things. There will be a cosmic renewal. Romans 8 says that all of creation is groaning. Groaning with anticipation for its renewal. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, Romans 8, 22. And we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. There is a cosmic uniting. Jesus will be the one who repairs the curse, takes away pain and brokenness and death and suffering. All the imperfections, as it were, of the universe will be made perfect. And the uniting together of Jewish people and non-Jewish people in the church under one roof is the argument of Ephesians as a present-day foretaste of this great cosmic uniting that will one day take place. What does this mean? This means, firstly, as an implication that Jesus and his redemption and his eventual uniting of all things is the lens through which we are to see everything. Now, most Toronto people live their lives with different parts of their life in a bunch of buckets. Here's my work bucket, here's my, here, here's my, or my student bucket, here's my relationships bucket, here, here's my interests and hobbies bucket, here's my family and family life bucket. Here's my passions and interests and dreams bucket, and I'm managing them all, and I'm juggling them all, and when work rises up, one of them has to kind of drop down. So, if you're from Toronto, this is kind of how we think of ourselves. I'm a woman from this place of birth. I'm the daughter of A and B. I'm from the ethnic heritage and culture C. I work in profession D at company E. I have interests F and G and H. My religion, if I have one, is I or J or K. And I have these buckets and I'm managing them all the time. Most Christian people actually manage their lives almost the same way. I have all these buckets. My religion is Christianity, so that, that means what I do Sunday morning and maybe what I do Tuesday night. But otherwise, it's just one of the buckets that I juggle. So I might put this Christianity bucket lower because my dating life has kind of slowed down and I need a little momentum, so I'm going to put a pause on my limitations spiritually in terms of who I'm willing to look at. I'm working in a fairly progressive office environment, so I'm going to go quiet about my faith at least until the next promotion or bias or bonus. I'll let people know on Sundays and then it's negotiable the rest of the time. 
But if everything is united, if the creator of the universe is going to be the recreator, if the beginning and the end are both Jesus, you are first and foremost a daughter or a son of God, redeemed by his blood, called to be his child, commissioned to be his ambassador to a world that needs to hear there's freedom from your slavery through his blood. Everything should be built from that foundation. All my passions, hobbies, choices, vocation, that is the lens through which you should build your life. Secondly, if it is true that he is the central unifier of all things, it should fuel a confidence in being his ambassador and going on his mission. We can sometimes feel like, oh, it's too hard right now. The culture seems a little too hostile or indifferent. But if you know where this ends, and you know who wins, and you are his redeemed child and his commissioned officer, it can give you a confident hope that your attempts to bear public witness for him will not be wasted. Because no word that goes forth from his mouth comes back empty, but it accomplishes the desire for which he has set it out. And finally, last implication. If Jesus has called the church to be a foreshadowing of the uniting of all things, then Jew and Greek Black and white, male and female, Asian, African, Latin American, Caucasian, North American, European, we are all one. And we are called to incarnate that unity in our community. Many of us have come from the suburbs. Suburbs, by the way, that they curate people's homes and lives tend to clump people together by socioeconomic status, sometimes even by ethnicity and culture. Suburban life relentlessly moves us towards monocultural experiences. The church, and particularly the urban church, is meant to be the opposite, the uniting of every tribe, nation, and tongue. So, we finish with this. Who gets this? Who gets this redemption that's so powerful and so purposeful? Everyone? If he unites all things, some scholars think that everyone then gets redeemed by Jesus. No, you have to be in him. That's the way this thing starts. In him are all these truths. People have been spiritually united to him in a kind of marriage by believing in him. Kingsley brought this up last week as the central metaphor used in Ephesians of being, Jesus being a bridegroom at a wedding who gives his life for his bride, but the bride has to respond. So I did a wedding yesterday. It was beautiful. The, the groom was so eager, <laughs> as they usually are. The bride was so radiant as they usually are. And as he waited for her to come, you could see the love glowing in his eyes and the gratitude glowing in his eyes. And you could see the responsive love in hers. She has responded to his invitation to live life together and come into covenant union. That's 
what God has given his children. If you are not yet a Christian, that is what Jesus offers you. He is, as it were, standing here waiting for you to come down and enter into this spiritual relationship like a marriage and be your bridegroom. If that has already happened, stop yawning about the forgiveness of sins. You've been in the city too long. Go out, look up, let your heart be captured by Jesus. Rejoice. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness and your grace to us. Help us now to get out, to look up, and to be thrilled anew by the glorious truth that we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Amen.